And welcome to another Film 5.0 podcast. This week is our second part of our interview with Tom Del Ruth. So sit back, relax, and let's start the show. How and where did you learn that? And did you do like hours of testing or was that by watching others? Well, that is a, a very good question. I, when I started... As a second assistant, and as I mentioned, it was at 20th Century Fox, I was working on a picture called Dr. Doolittle, and Bob Surtees was a DP. And my job was to do Sinex tests. So I would take the film that he would shoot, some of the black and white tests, and I'd take it in and develop it myself. And then I would get the negatives together, and then they were, i put them all in a line like that, so you could read the negatives at various exposures. And so it was kind of like a Sinex strip. So I got used to the idea of being able to manipulate chemistry in a laboratory in order to achieve a certain result. The, how I furthered my education in that was the fact that I'd spend a great deal of time with a timer during the days when they time film at the laboratory. And so I could go in and watch the entire process in terms of what the bleach process looked like, how it was accomplished, who, whoever was running through bleach process at the time. It might be Vilmo Sigmund who was bleach processing a picture of one of his pictures. So I was watching the mechanical aspects of the bleach process and what the final result of it was. And then I could do bleach bypass you know, on a test. So I would take a roll of 400 foot film run a test of a set, and then do a bleach bypass on it, and force, and then do another one where you're forced two stops, force three stops, and then underexpose two, three, four, and see where the grain is, depending on uh, where it was printed on the trims. So that was just a photochemical manipulation, and any cinematographer should have been capable of doing all of that. Now, I'm not sure that they can do that today. I'm not sure a modern cinematographer uh, understands that process or the filtrations necessary. When I came up through the ranks, it was a requirement that I learn all the black and white filters and what they were supposed to use for, like a 23A56 combination is day for night. It's a red and blue, you know, combination. Uh, and the, and, and uh, you know, 13s and all the rest of these colorations that you had to have. And uh, it was quite a schooling and grounding in the technical aspects of how to achieve an image on film that was uh, a combination sorcery, chemistry, and, and magic. You know, how, how this would all accomplish to, you know, get something on the screen. I thought it was endlessly fascinating. Uh, and I'm not really a technical person, but heart. I'm, I have a more ethereal sense of life and, and somewhat blasé about the technical aspects, but it's still accessible to everyone who wants to delve themselves into it. And as a cinematographer, you have to have a certain grounding in that. You don't have to understand it to the level of some of my ASC com compatriots who were the absolute encyclopedic 
responses in terms of film structure and grain and masks and the rest of it. It's not necessary that you understand or know that. It's fine if you understand it, but you don't have to know it as, as a, a working tool because the other things are accessible to you very easily. One of the things that I was thinking about uh, a lot of the DPs today, like 30s, 40s, they sort of grew up with the digital world. Yeah. I mean, with, and not knowing about what you're talking mm -hmm. about. And maybe not ever needing to know all they, although they would find it interesting. But, but um, like the dip that we introduced, you know, like the mystery is disappearing along with these guys because he said, I'm working with guys that the first and last thing they've done has all been digital. So they don't know. Every once in a while they get thrown into film. We were teaching people how to load magazines the other day. <laughs> so, but they don't, they don't. I mean, they're still shooting film in some cases, but not a lot of it. Oh, yeah. But uh, anyway, it's interesting to me that, I mean, so many things have changed. I mean, maybe there's a different skill set for digital. There is a different skill set. And what has happened, uh, you know, in, in my opinion, the magic has gone out of it. And consequently, the ma once the magic goes and it becomes accessible to almost everyone to understand it and also accomplish it, then it... it, it it reduces the contribution and significance of the cinematographer. And that's something that I, I concern myself with, uh, is that uh, you could be relegated just exclusively to image capture without the sense of lighting. It, you obviously would use composition and you'd obviously use camera movement. But one of the essential ingredients of cinematography is lighting. And if you remove that, basically, and allow that to go into the hands of, sub, of people down the production line, then you've really lost control of your craft. And so that's why I think the definition of what a cinematographer is today, I prefer to call them videographers, as opposed to a cinematographer, which was, in my estimation, a film cinematographer who had the ability to work within, well within that medium. But in the digital medium, you're relegating a fair amount of work to other people. So, you know, that, that to me is, uh, is problematic. And I think it reduces uh, the prestige of the, of, of the title. You can purchase a, a camera for a reasonable price nowadays and then you'd put an ad in, I'm a DP, I got a camera, you know, so I'm a director of photography. And you're really not. Uh, you know, there's a, a, a very steep learning curve to understand film, the technique of it, not necessarily film, but I'm talking about uh, what an image does to enhance a storyline. And that's basically what I mean. And I, I hope that the contemporary cinematographers, the ones that are younger, have that understanding of what the visual medium means to the film on a scene-to-scene -scene basis. Because the emotions and what is being communicated in each scene is somewhat different, although the arc of the film, you know, remains the same, but there's these patterns, these patchwork patterns within it that are these individual scenes that advance the story. And each of those are individual movies. 
and they should be looked at as individual movies. Enough so that but they, it, it's a cohesive look, but yet the stylization is different for each because the subject is different. Yeah. And somehow it's brought it back to you're always aware that there's a camera. I don't know where that started and why everybody likes that, but it's pretty popular. I it is. Uh it is. I was concerned about that. There seems to be a trend now towards uh a camera actually on the top of a tripod or on a dolly. Uh, I've noticed that uh recently in a lot of digital work, but yes, there was a period and I still it's certainly there today too, where everything is uh handheld. Now the proponents of it say that there's a dynamicism that creates the image. But to me, it's, it's, it's almost as though there's a, an interloper in the room. When I see a camera doing this, this to me is a point of view of someone who's going to murder that subject. You know, I'm going to kill you if I'm here, or I'm a voyeur, you know, here. And I don't like that because you're, it's cinematically you're saying that there's someone else, there's almost someone else in the room whose eyes you're looking through at this, as opposed to here, you are watching a film and the characters are carrying the narrative. But here there's this question in my mind of who is this person that's back here? You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's what I don't like about it. I, 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 I despise it. Now, handheld, of course, is very valid when you're doing action scenes, always has been. Action scenes and also when you're doing uh, someone who is going through uh, an extreme emotional event where, you know, a psychotic event and that kind of swinging around going like this, lenses, you know, that's all very appropriate. But I just don't like this standing around with this little vibration like this. I think it, I, I think it hurts the film. Well, they like to call that fly on the wall. Like if, you know, it was a fly on the wall... But I agree with you. Yeah, totally but you. a fly doesn't watch the movies, you know. That's right. <laughs> 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 He'd be yeah, he would. He'd just be sitting there and watching. Oh, this is a good film. I'll just sit here. But how many times have we heard that? I mean, to me, it, reminds, it makes me realize that there's a camera. Yeah. I want to see the story. I appreciate what goes on with the camera, but it's a window to see the story. I mean, I don't want to be reminded yeah. every second. That there's a camera in there, yeah. And that's the other aspect of it, too, yes. As, as Steve says, it, 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 it sets you in, and if you start realizing that, then it's pulling you out of the story. So it's doing a disservice to the narrative. And, you know, that's unfair to the writer, basically. Uh, what kind of advice do you have to young filmmakers that are not having the ability to use film and learn from it that they're just going into the digital world and say, well, I can manipulate this, I can make this better. What advice do you have for them? Well, I think it's clearly a question of, uh, of being able to understand first the filmmaking process and what the film is about and why the story is being told the way it is. And the attack of the technique that you use to tell that particular story uh, is locked in the vaults of films that are previously made. So if you're studying those, you will understand the process by which you know you're telling a story cinematically. So I think 
you can achieve that. Now, you do have a lot of helping hands in, in modern filmmaking because there is a lot of people watching that monitor. Uh, there is uh, safety in numbers, essentially, because if you have that number of eyes watching a monitor and a camera moving around, they can see errors and mistakes that you may, in fact, as an individual, may miss. So there's some benefit in that. The only, uh, the only downside of it is when the suggestions start coming in about changing things. Now, of course, if the director is making or suggesting those changes, well, then, of course, it's his movie. But when you have, you know, the third hairdresser going, oh, my God, you know, there's a hair in someone's eye. I said, for Christ's sake, girl, you know, you don't, you don't worry about that. You know, nobody's paying tickets to sit there and watch the hair. You know, it's, a, it's part of the group. So I think that, you know, studying the technique of film, how film is, uh, is, is assembled, the structure of it. I want you to understand as a, as a young filmmaker the, uh, the importance of editing and being able to structure the story basically, you know, with the footage that is being captured. And so those techniques and, and avenues of exploration, I think, are what is necessary for modern young men to know and the history of film, too. Are films that you've seen recently, if you have, what do you like that you see coming up that's that's interesting that's 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 being a real cinematographer that's that's showing us great images and, and emotion through light oh, and wow. You know, I don't actually know of any. Now, uh, most people, you know, would refer nowadays to Roger Deakins, but he's not new, and he's not coming along, and he's just, he's established, and he's very good at what he does. Uh, he, you know, is very good. Uh, I can't think of anybody at the moment because there is such a rotation of cinematographers. I mean, uh, every time I see a film it, nowadays, it seems to be a cinematographer I'm not familiar with or have not, not heard of before. So I can't really make a, an informed judgment uh, about that recently. It was, it's just something that, uh, that eludes me at this point. I'm sure there's going to be somebody emerging out there, and I'm sure there already are now, especially in the realm of television, because that's where all the medium is heading. Uh, you know, in, in cable television, you know, HBO, Showtime, and the variety of those things, which I think uh, any young person that's an aspiring filmmaker would, would want to dedicate their craft because that's where all the talent is going, is to television, not necessarily anymore to feature films, basically because of their action-adventure. And it's very difficult to get a personal story mounted as a feature film now, unless a big filmmaker is at the helm and can, has enough power and horsepower to bring this to fruition through attracting money to his project. So television is clearly the avenue of, uh, of further experimentation and where most filmmakers are going to make their mark in the future. But unfortunately, I just can't think of anybody at the moment, I'm, although they exist, I, they just aren't coming to mind. Getting back to your dad again for a minute. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the difference then and now, maybe there's not a difference, but the director, like your dad, really understood what the DP was about and what he was doing. Do you think there was a better connection then? Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> yes. Well, I think uh, I think the the DP director started to diverge, and uh, not be necessarily always on the same wavelength. Was the addition of a monitor on a set? That was the first division in which the DP was off by the camera, and the and the director is at a monitor. Now, in my cases, the monitor was always very close to the the crab dolly, if it hasn't wasn't moving. So there was a sense of being relatively close. But in my father's day, my dad was standing right next to the cinematographer and the cinematographer is standing right next to the camera. And you're either sitting under it or, or an adjacent to it. So it was just a question of turning and talking. And, uh, and it was a, a far more uh, cohesive method of communication. And the actor is sitting there and he's also part and parcel of the scene because he's 10 feet away from the actors. And there's a certain I think there's probably a certain comfort from the actor's point of view that the director is close by and, and not this figure in the shadows somewhere else that occasionally makes a remark, you know, and sometimes the message is sent through the assistant director out there. So I think it's a far more personal experience back in my, my, my father's day. I only worked in my career which started in 79. I only worked with one director that sat next to the camera in all those years. That was Costa Gavras. Oh, yeah. He, and, uh, we had monitors, but he wanted to be right there. The yeah. Time I'd ever, yeah. And I was like, oh, that's nice. <laughs> so it's the other question I had, may I? You got something? No, go ahead. Um, you, I mean, like you told me the other day, even that you were kind of born into the film business. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, but. It's it's always curious to me. I mean, you were, you had this relationship with your dad, and you were obviously seeing and knowing about the film industry. When you finished high school, what what made you join the army rather than stay, just getting right in the career? So, Adventure. Uh, I, I simply right out of high school. Uh, it was a it was a, my generation. And when I graduated from high school in 1961, we were all war babies. And during that particular time, we grew up, you know, during the the Second World War uh, and also the Korean War uh, at that time. So, and we we were highly influenced, my generation, by old war films and the patriotic sense of serving their country. Not that that in in and of itself was enough motivation, but it was the adventure of, uh, of joining one of the armed forces, primarily one of the ones that, you know, was at the pointy end of the spear rather than Marine Corps or, or, or the Army. So it was, uh, it was that kind of adventure that I was looking for. And uh, I was uh, a loose cannon basically in high school. I mean, I was a young guy, you know, playing around and having a good time without any real particular thoughts. And it seemed to me that all of us, you know, most of my friends all went in the service after they graduated from high school. There were several, of course, that went on to uh, university immediately, but it wasn't until I got out of the Army that I decided to go to school for a while, which I didn't graduate from college. I took classes at USC and Valley College and juries, things like that, and I learned film theory and stuff, and, but I learned all of my practical experience from on-the-job training, which, which I highly recommend. Because, you know, the uh, watching it and involving yourself in it is a far greater education than it is for an instructor to be sitting up in front of you and telling you what it's about. 
and then maybe sending you out with a 16 millimeter camera as they did in my day, 16 millimeter camera to make a little film. Now that's all informative and interesting, but it in no way approximates what it's like on a real movie set. What was the best piece of advice that one of the early cameramen gave to you? That maybe he didn't say, this is a piece of advice I'm giving to you, but something that you heard or saw that you took with you and just resonated with you, like that's something that I can hold on to and use that in my career. Well, there are two things. One's kind of humorous, but the first one was told, actually uh, said to me by, by Conrad Hall. He said, be your own cinematographer. Don't emulate a style of someone else. Be your own, be your own voice and defend it to the death. And what he meant by that, uh, Conrad was a wonderful guy, but he was kind of irascible. You know, you didn't want to rattle his feathers too much. And I'm not talking about the crew, but I'm talking about the director, or, and I can tell you stories, but I won't. <laughs> you, know, uh, uh, you know, because he is an artist, and this is his vision, and he doesn't want it trampled by, by lesser individuals. Well, and, you know, he never put it in those words, because that's not how he was as a person. Uh, and the other was given to me by Jordan Cronowith. He says to me, biggest advice I can give you, Tom, is save your money. <laughs> what's, the, what's the piece of advice or something that you saw you were like, I'm never going to do that? Oh, boy, there's a lot of things I'm never I wasn't ever going to do. And it was, uh, let's see, as far as advice... I don't think anyone told me not to do something, but I had seen things on the screen that I, I knew I was never going to do. It was like watching an old episode of Kojak, the way it was lit. It was, you know, I don't want to take any away from the cinematographer who, who was shooting Kojak because I'm sure he had a really wonderful career. I can't remember who it was at Universal at the time, uh, but he was an older gentleman and had been around probably since the 30s and stuff. had done a lot of probably B-movies at Republic and, you know, Screen Gems and things like that and kept, kept on going. Uh, but, I, you know, those are one of the things I said, I'm never going to do anything like that, you know. So there is, you know, ah, like this, you know. <laughs> well, we were just, yeah. I, yeah, head shadow over here like that, you know, and the big break on the wall, you know, coming down black, you know, behind him and the tan wall and a big shadow like that. Somebody's horror of like, oh, my God. I liked watching a Cozy TV, and they'll do a thing like a, um, a, a Columbo Emergency, a Little House on the Prairie, and Kojak. And just the different styles. When you get to Kojak, you get those that just that hard light that was just unforgiving. Yeah, and yeah. Then his nose would oh, get. Yeah, yeah. yeah I see. <laughs> what's interesting to me about that is that, I mean, that happened like during the '60s and stuff. But if you go back to cinema, like you, some of the films, they weren't doing that. Some of them were really beautiful and soft. Yes. Oh no! They're... I mean, I I grew up thinking, well. This is the way old cameramen shot, but it, it wasn't that way. No, it wasn't that way. If you go back and look at these old movies, they were beautiful. Oh, no. There was, you know, if you're doing hard light and you do it effectively and properly, you know, it can be, it can be beautiful in, uh, in the black and white style of the 30s and 40s. They did a wonderful job, but the, the disadvantage of, uh, of doing television in the 60s was the fact that 
bright was where it's at. So the cinematographer may be shooting it, but they had the ability at that time to really pump it up, which they did. And they shot everything in close-up because they thought television was about the talking head. So you had this glaring ball of fire, you know, that was speaking. And that was what was the style. But where is that cinematographer working 20 years earlier or 25 years earlier in another period was quite capable of doing beautiful work because there, there was nobody manipulating that particular image later on. Or he might have been, you know, just a so-so cameraman all the way along, but very fast, which was the primary ingredient of a cinematographer in television. That was what was necessary. What did it mean to, first of all, be ASC, and then also being at this event last week to celebrate 100 years of the ASC? Well, I think to, to me, uh, the ASC had represented a milestone uh, for any cinematographer to reach. Now, the reason I had probably a little bit more respect for that is I grew up in an area in a neighborhood that had a number of cinematographers. Uh, Ernest Haller lived about a block away, and Bob Surtees lived six doors away. James Wong Howe lived about two blocks. Bert Glennon, who uh, was John Ford's and also my dad's uh, cameraman, uh, lived about six blocks away. And my best friend was Jimmy Glennon, who was in my class. You know, we grew up together since we were six years old. Uh, so I had the understanding, and, and I was uh, of what cinematography was at a very young age because I was around these guys and you couldn't help but stumble over their Academy Awards as you walked in the house. And I, over at Jimmy's house, Jimmy Glennon, Bert Glennon, would take me into his room, dark room, which was adjacent to the other side of the breezeway, and he would sit in there and he'd show me how to develop film when I was like nine or ten years old. This is how it's done. Now, I didn't really understand it, and I probably couldn't develop film when I was 10 years old, but I saw what he was doing, and I saw the Sinex strips that, were, that cinematographers would get from the lab, and I saw that, this magic that he was creating. And then on the wall uh, were stills of him, you know, working on various of his films, and also uh, the idea that he was bigger than life. Uh, to me, uh, you know, Mr. Glennon, he was a, World War II fighter pilot, you know, like a hero. And he was uh, just a, a, an interesting guy, grumpy, but interesting, you know, kind of guy. And as I might, I might, I might add, those old cinematographers are not the, pat, the kind that walk you on, pat you on the back and say, hey, let's go have lunch like they do today. You didn't even talk to them. You didn't, the assistants, you just don't talk to them. And I, I can't tell you, I got whacked in the head one time by somebody that I gave, I, I was not paying attention took the finder off the camera. This was back in the days in the BNC and you had a finder. Take the finder off, hand it to the DP. And he puts the slots in there and he lines up the shot. And then he just takes it like that and hands it to you. Well, I wasn't paying attention. And he hit me right in the head with it. He, he, intentionally, he just went bam, like that. And he says, pay attention, like that. And I went, ooh, yeah, okay. That was, yeah, that happened a lot, truly. I can tell, I won't tell you who it was. <laughs> I, no, I, I can't, I can't. But there was a guy who was, he, I can't even give you his name. I won't do it. He would, uh, very well-known film that was shot in the 70s, Academy Award winner. 
He always wore his a raincoat like a cape around him. And when he'd walk on the stage, you never knew what door he was going to come in. So assistant directors had to be outside, one of them, and find out where he was and which door he was going to come in. Then the AD would yell in and say, he's coming through the north door. The guy'd walk in through the front north door, and as soon as he opened the second door to the center guy, he used to take his thumbs and flick his coat, and it better not hit the floor. Because whoever, if it hit the floor, the person closest to it was fired. And who was required to catch that was the second assistant cameraman. He had to be there and catch it. If it hit the floor, you're off. You're gone. And that's the truth. We talk a lot in our seminar about set etiquette. Yeah. And how things have changed. I mean, yeah. We hear it changed a lot. But, but that's a good story about how DPs or directors especially wanted there was... You respected the silence. You respect you yeah. on That's scene. right. You just didn't. You just didn't walk up to. Even though I knew Bob Surtees because he lived just down the street, and I knew Bruce quite well because Bruce was only four years older than I was, and he used to drive me to school occasionally. Uh, when I when I was working on Doctor Doolittle, you know, you just stood on the side. You would never walk up to Bob Surtees and say, you know, hey, how you doing? You know, it's not. It's not that. What do you mean, how am I doing? How are you doing? Get out of here. You know, you know. <laughs> Bruce was never like that, fortunately. No, no. I worked with him once. Oh, yeah, Bruce, yeah. Well, Bruce was a, Bruce was a good, well, Bruce was a more modern cinematographer. You know, he was the one that was, you know, a little more affable. But it was just not, you, know, you just, today I, I see, you know, guys, you know, like the DP taking everybody out every day and getting drunk or something. That would never happen. That would never happen. You know, they would never, they maintain that distance. Always. You always know who is the boss, you know. They weren't necessarily rude to you, but they'll yell at you. You know, don't be an idiot. Oh, one time I was doing Dr. Doolittle, I'll mention this. Uh, it was Dr. Doolittle, I think, or Planet of the Apes. I was working for Leon Shamroy, which I'd done a bunch of, a couple of movies for Leon. And um, this was when they had 220 motors on the, uh, uh, the BNCs, and you had to roll six or seven feet of film in order to get a slate before you could roll the camera in order to get it up to speed because the 220 motors were slow. It took a while to get up and you had to run sound at the same time off the same current. Uh, I was uh, standing in, and I was already up to my ankles in water, just my shoes are on too, I got in the thing, because Leon said, don't, we're not going to pan the camera to you, boy. We're going to Keep the camera where it's supposed to be. You get in front of the camera. And I went, well, it's, uh, yeah. but there was water on the stage, and it was a lake. It was, ah, get it. So I stepped in the water with my shoes, clank, 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 over like that, and I stand in front of it like that. And I got the slate up, and they've got this little effect, a hard light hitting a mirror that's underwater, and it's causing a ripple effect on my slate, like that. And it's also hitting my face, and I'm sitting there smiling, you know, like, you know, happy. And he says, all right, all right, you little, all right, you little asshole. He says, this is not a screen test. Get the fuck out of there. You know. I went, okay. I went, fine. Oh, I could tell you more stories, but I can't. 
because I, it just is it's so funny. The guys were wonderful. I must tell you, those the, those old DFs were characters. Oh my God, they were just some of the greatest things would happen. All right. Well, then we'll have to come back for another time because this is too enjoyable. That character is a good word because they are they were characters. The digital domain allows the camera to run continuously without the need to cut or de or to that extent, you know, uh, when an actor is on a roll and he flubs a line, he can go right back into it again without cutting because you have uh, an infinite ability to capture the image. And so I think that may be one of the overriding factors about this particular aspect of it. I, I think, yes, as far as the cost is concerned, uh, I'm, I'm sure that it, uh, you know, is, eliminates any advantage there is of shooting video, but I don't, I think there's a tremendous uh, advantage for the director and the editor in having the camera running continuously, although that's an arduous thing for the camera operator, especially if he's in a steady cam, which frequently they are nowadays, it's hard uh, to have to have that um, amount of uh, you know information that's being. I'm sorry, I don't know why I'm getting off topic here. Um, that's okay. Well, our, the guy when we interviewed uh, the operator the other day with this David. David Emmerichs, he he comment about that and he said he said that he said nowadays they don't cut <laughs> he said he said in the cameras they haven't really got any lighter they could they put everything on it yeah and he said you know you could be standing there for half an hour like used to be 11 minutes yeah and you'd look forward to that 11 minutes yeah that's right because you'd be finished with it <laughs> yeah yeah, well, yeah cam was even less than that um four yeah four minutes but um yeah it's just you know, when you look around, you're like, wait a minute, there's all these additional... Well, then the other advantage, too, is the being able for the director and producer to have a very real semblance of what the final image is going to be by looking at it on the monitor, assuming the DIT is doing what he's supposed to do. And you have the lookup table already into the camera. Then you have some reasonable close proximation, which you didn't have before when you just had a black and white monitor. Even a color monitor was broken up and it had bad contrast and it was not particularly good. So those two advantages, I, I think, are the overriding deciding factors to keep these on the set despite whatever costs there are. Because it, it seems uh, unproductive to have all of these, uh, you know, it looks like Bedouin tents all over a desert floor and these black objects, you know, they're everywhere. What do you think it's done to the craft? I think it's cheapened it, cinematography. I think the uh, uh, since it was alchemy and magic that <laughs> that the cinematographer was able to provide, and it was the idea of not knowing really what you have. I mean, as far as the other priests were concerned, until the following dailies. Hopefully, the cinematographer knew what he was what he was going to get the next day. But still, there was that sense of uh, nervousness uh, that you had. I've had it a million times. So we, you know, I don't, I don't know if that's going to work out quite so well. So I have to wait until the next morning, and I'd be the very first person on the phone to the lab at seven o'clock in the morning, talking to the timer, you know, to see if what I thought was going to work out was going to work out. So it's alleviated that. So there is no more uh, sense of uh, 
dramatic urgency on the part of the cinematographer or people on the crew and in production in order to see what the image is going to look like the following day. But that was, of course, one of the aspects of cinematography that kept the cinematographer on his toes was the fact that he had to really pay attention to what he was doing because, you know, you might uh, fool yourself sometimes in a very unpleasant way. Do you think that's translated down the, down the line in terms of the whole structure of the set, like crew-wise? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Well, I think a set etiquette has pretty much gone the way of high-button shoes. Uh, very much so. I mean, there's this um, sense that a sense of equality. I mean, all people, you know, okay. Like, I mean, there's a hierarchy, and but but people that are in positions of support, you know, should remain in positions of support and not uh, offer unsolicited opinions, you know, which cause doubt, which cause which takes time, which cause which is caught, requires a response from someone, and I, I find that lacking uh, uh, today, as, as it, but it, that did not have a problem in the 70s and 80s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you know. I don't recall uh, having these cabal of people uh, that had their own agenda that they wanted to translate, or tra you know, transmit to people who were in a position to affect that and do something with it. Uh, I, I, I don't uh, like that uh, method uh, of, of communication that's there present now. I agree with you there too. Uh, what was the best film TV show that you worked on. What gave you the most joy? Was it West Wing, or what was it that yeah. you really enjoyed? Originally, oh, oh West Wing. Um, I uh, I liked ER. I liked the pilot of ER. I thought that was fun to do because we were using the Steadicam. So uh, interestingly, I thought that was nice. You know, being able to put that in movement because it was dialogue intense and it was about intensity in the operating room and that was a good way to express to show that dynamicism was moving the camera continuously punctuating it um, other things I, I liked uh, I like stand by me a great deal because I had a uh, a lot of ability and choices that I could make on any one particular day and that was very satisfying and the kids were good, you know, they were easy to work with, I thought. Rob had a difficult time with them uh, frequently, but uh, that, was, that was wonderful to work with. And it was, it was interesting that, uh, that I had an opportunity to do that huge silk job, because we, we silked three acres of uh, land. We cut the trees off at 47 feet and, put, and had sailmakers come in and put silks between the trees on trusses. And it was amazing to create an overcast so that we could, when we found the body, it was found in overcast and not sunlight. Oregon at that particular time on that particular, uh, on that side had an extraordinary run of sunlight, which was 90 days or 100 days straight, which really never happens there. I mean, it's amazing that we had this much sunlight, which was totally wrong for the finding of the body sequence. So we they asked me what we could do about it, and I said, well, we could move the company to the coast and shoot up until 12 o'clock in the afternoon, 12.30 maybe, because that's when the fog comes in. Then what do we do? They said from 12 to 12.30. Then I said, well, we 
can't really do anything because we're out of night scenes and we don't have any cover sets. So I said, well, that's not going to work. I said, what else? And he says, well, I said, I could silk it. And he goes, that whole thing? And I said, well, yeah, you know, if you got the money, I think we can do it, you know? So I called the key grip over and I, I showed him what, what we could do. And he said, well, he got to work on it. And a day later, they got an estimate and it was a substantial amount of money to do this. But, and they put it up to uh, Rob and, and the producers and they said, well, uh, let's do it. You know, it's probably worth doing it, having the wind blowing and the rest of that stuff. So we silked this whole thing. And immediately after we got the silks up and they were all, and we had cut all these trees down and made this huge area, the very next day it rained. Clouds came in and it rained. So we had to hire fish and game people with 22s and what they would do is stand out there all night long and shoot holes in the silks so that it would drain, otherwise it would collapse the silks. <laughs> <laughs> like the rain, that's a whole other thing. That's a lot of water. Yeah, coming down on top of that. So it was, and we had four acres of, uh, of silk up, and it was just amazing. We shot under it for quite a long time, but it provided a cover set, too, because ironically, as I said, it rained the following day, but then it cleared up the following day, and we shot. Uh, no problem, because it was still relatively dry underneath it because we had these tarps, I mean, these silks up everywhere. But a week later, it started raining again, and it rained uh, continuously, drizzling on and off for a number of days. And we would not have been able to shoot there because of the pine trees, you know, just soak the water down and you're just drenched all the time. We were able to shoot for two weeks underneath this huge uh, silked area, basically because we put it up. So we kind of made up the time and cost of what it was to put this whole rig up and thank God the weather turned bad. So we use it as a cover set. So it worked out. We worked on the Hunted and they had rigged one of the <clears throat> many bridges in Portland with rain mm -hmm. to be able to, you know, because it's rainy season. Uh, it was the driest spring in Portland. We had Which the exact same issue and we would shoot until about noon and then we would go on a break, and then as the sun went down, suddenly we would hurry up and, and shoot things, but we were down, I don't know how much, but that's exactly what happened to us on The Hunted. Yeah. Except they didn't do a silk, they were just like, all right, everybody just take a break for a couple hours, and we're like, are you serious? Yeah, that's a pretty amazing on uh, a show, you know, where you say, oh yeah, take, uh, take five hours and uh, just hang out. Yeah, we were just amazed at it, but it, it was an yeah, interesting that's show. that's what you had to do. Yeah. That's, that's just how it was. Funny. Yeah. The transition when you got out of high school, and, and like your dad died pretty young. He was like in his uh, Actually, uh, when uh, my father passed away uh, in 1961, and uh, I remember the scene visible uh, when I was notified, I was on the rifle range. I was in basic training at Fort Ord, and I was on a rifle, rifle range and shooting, firing the old M1. And I remember looking over my left shoulder because I heard a Jeep coming from down the firing line. And the Jeep came up and it stopped kind of behind me to the, the range NCO was standing there. I got out and I, I looked back over my shoulder and I saw the first sergeant, my first sergeant, get out and talk to the range NCO. And both of them came over and I went back to firing, but I felt a shadow coming over me. 
like that. And they said, oh shit, I'm going to get barked at by a DI or something. And uh, they leaned down and they said, uh, Private Del Ruth? And I said, yes. And they said, come with me. And I went to the Jeep. And uh, I thought I was in trouble because they wanted me to see the CO. Okay. Uh, I asked the first sergeant. I said, Sergeant, what's this about? And he said, sorry, I don't know. So yeah, I talked to Lieutenant Bender, wanted in to see Lieutenant Bender, and uh, he said, sit down. He says, I have some bad news for you. Your father passed away last night. And he says, I've already cut orders for you to go home. And so anyway, that's, that, that was that. Uh, I, uh, you know, that's what happened. And the night before, when he died, I remember I had the top bunk, because I was a squad leader in this basic training unit of first squad, second squad. And I, I, had, I had chosen the top bunk on the second rack. And I remember I sat bolt upright around 3 o'clock in the morning. I jumped up like that, and I was scared. And the fire watch, the guy that's on fire watch, you know, that helmet, and he was watching around like that. He was startled. He was, wait, what are you doing? I said, oh, God, I just had a nightmare or something. Got up, I didn't know what was wrong. I went back to sleep 15 minutes later. But then the following morning, he told me my dad died. And he died, actually, about the time that I woke up. It just maybe it's coincidence, but it was it was a very strange thing. I don't think those are coincidences. Yeah, I don't I don't either. I mean, I I, I yeah I don't I think it was there was a reason for it because it's to me it's an energy. Yeah. yeah. And you're named after him. So. Did he have any condition that was it a surprise or? It w no, it wasn't. Well, he had a heart condition, but he didn't tell anyone. My mom knew. Uh, that he had a heart condition, but in those days you don't know how serious your heart condition is because they couldn't do any kind of exploratory surgery as they can now. They can't do a thallium treadmill or any of that sort of stuff. They didn't have the technique uh, to do that. He knew he had a, uh, a heart condition. He never told me. And I think he kept it quiet in a general sense because it would have affected his employment. It certainly would have because everyone that I know subsequently to that especially in the production ranks, like producers and stuff who have gotten heart problems. They've pretty much gotten out of the business. They were out of the business six months later. And, uh, I don't know how I lasted after, because everybody knew I had a heart problem. I was in the hospital and they did the bi bypasses and all the rest of this. But I don't know how that didn't affect, well it might have, I don't know, but I was already on the West Wing and I stayed on it for five years and I did some things subsequent to that, so I guess you know, it didn't have a great deal of effect unless it might have affected my being able to be bonded on an independent picture. Because I don't think I, oh yeah, I did do one feature. The last thing I did was wrote with Rob Reiner. 09, was it? Mm -hmm. 010, just when I finished. So I got bonded there. So I guess maybe it didn't have that much effect uh, on me. But I haven't had any ill effects from the heart issues. You know, I don't get tired or anything, but I take a mass of pills. You would think I was my own drugstore. Amazing. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Rob Reiner, he's, isn't he wonderful? Yeah, he's a very good actor's director. Uh, he's very good with story and, uh, and a good sense of humor. You know, I, I, uh, I always enjoyed him. He was a nice, I thought he was a nice guy. He's kind of a bull in a china shop in the sense that he's, he's big and, and, and loud. You know, you've got to kind of go, oh, here comes Rob. And, uh, you know, because he'd yell at the actors, you know, and his voice, you know, shaking the walls.
So we've been talking about your dad, but what about your mom? She was an actress. She oh, was, well, what, my mother was, she, was a. Was uh, she an interesting? Oh my God! Oh lady. my God! Tell us about God. her personality a little bit. Wow, she was uh, just an incredible person. She was just. Uh, uh, well, let me let me start by saying that when she was uh, six years old, she was singing and dancing for pennies on the street corners in New York City, and that's how she basically was discovered uh, with her voice. And uh, a vaudeville act came along, Alex Newton Alexander, and they said to this little six-year-old, how would you like to go on stage? And my mom said, okay, got permission from uh, uh, her, her dad, who was the chief of police of Long Island, uh, to go on stage. And my mom went into vaudeville when she was seven, eight years old. And she stayed in vaudeville until 1925. She was doing stage productions and uh, musicals and stuff, but mostly vaudeville, uh, working the circuits, you know, in and around New York City, Chicago, Boston, Cleveland, you know, the things that vaudevilles, vaudevillers did in those particular days. And my father had uh, gone east on a, a talent hunt for looking for talent, because at that time he was a, a director for Warner Brothers back in the 20s. He had started back in the teens as a director, but now it's in the mid-20s. And they were looking for new talent uh, for uh, Hollywood. And so he went back to uh, New York and he saw a couple of actresses in a show that he liked. And one was Joan Crawford and the other was, uh, was Winnie Leitner, this young comedian who could dance and she could really sing. She had a tremendously powerful voice. So, uh, he brought both of them back to Hollywood, and uh, Winnie was uh, signed to a contract, and so was Crawford. And uh, Winnie wound up doing a number of pictures with my dad, and that's how that relationship, uh, you know, blossomed. And she uh, she did, you know, about ten pictures, ten, twelve, I don't know, about that many. And and then uh, the uh, the the whole uh, genre of musicals was on the way out. At that time, my mom was a was really a balls out comedian, and it was very difficult for her to play any particular type of straight role because there was always something about her that you knew that she was going to make some sort of wisecrack, because she was a really, really funny woman, and so she she didn't quite work in a dramatic roles, and they didn't quite know what to do with her, and so she kind of languished. They they loaned her out to MGM, and she she did a couple of pictures with uh, Clark Gable and other people. Uh, that were mildly successful, uh, but it really wasn't her thing because she was 36 years old at that point, and she'd already been on stage for 30 years. You know, she'd had a, a long career, 36. And my dad and her were were being an item, and uh, they finally, you know, got married. And then when when that happened, she just quit. You know, she said, I don't want to do this anymore. I'd rather go to PTA meetings or something, you know, and do that. But she was hysterical. She, we had more interesting friends that would come over to the house. There was a, I don't know, we, we used to have parties all the time. And we had very interesting people. Uh, we had Ginger Rogers over a lot. I knew that she was, you know, I knew her when I was a kid. Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers actually danced on our patio. We had a big patio out by the pool. We had a kind of a large home. And it was this, and they were, they had danced. We had a little orchestra there, you know, parties and stuff in Hollywood. You know, you had all this stuff. And it was basically free because 
studio musicians would come, you know, just, just for the sake of, you know, being there and playing and stuff. And so you'd have all these wonderful actors around. And my mother, uh, there was an actor by the name of Jack Carson. I remember my mom was loaded. She was drunk. And she got Jack Carson, who was a very well-known actor during the 40s. And he tried, she tried picking him up and throwing him in the pool. And he did throw him in the pool. And my mom got a hernia. We had to take her to the hospital. <laughs> Queen of Angels. And it was like that. We had these actors over the house. We had uh, a very famous prostitute by the name of Mamie Stover that was a great friend of my mom's. And she was a big, broad hooker, you know, that was a madam. And, and she had a big stable of girls and stuff. And, but she was a big, broad personality. She'd come through the door, hey, how are you? You know, and she'd be wearing uh, this outrageous costume or something, you know. Oh, you know, she'd hug you and hey, dummy, like that. And then to walk off, you know, it's my mother. She was, mom was always, uh, having parties and she entertained the neighborhood and she was she was a great mom you know I really I really I really enjoyed her she was she was fun and and she'd get invited to parties when I was in my early 20s after I just got out of the army I remember going over to Jack Haley's house you know the Tin Man and went to a party there and I spent the night talking to uh, Nancy Sinatra uh, because Frank was there, you know, and I got to know all of these people, you know, that were very interesting, you know, to me. So I used to go to these little functions like that and I would tag with my mom. And then when I got going, I mean, when I, oh, I, I started to mention that uh, when I first got out of Hollywood, I got, uh, I went with my mom to, to some function and, it, and there was an agent there. His name was Sher, Louis Schur. And he was a well-known agent at the time. And Lewis and his secretary uh, asked me, would you be interested in doing any print work or uh, commercial work? And I said, yeah, because I said I was going to this acting school. Remember at that time, I think I, then I got off topic. Uh, and so he represented me and I started doing print work, you know, Timex, Ford, uh, Mustang. Uh, Chloe, you know, was perfume and stuff like that. I was always a guy with a girl and a Jaguar and something like that. So I started doing that stuff and doing uh, some print work. I brought in some money, but I didn't want to stay in front of the camera. That was not my thing. Maltese Falcon? Oh, yeah. The original. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. they yeah. did. Uh, well, they had done the Maltese Falcon just prior uh, to him uh, at the same studio. It was about eight years earlier. Oh, no, I'm sorry. My father, yeah, I, I, I've got the, the uh, chronology wrong. My dad did the first Maltese Falcon with, uh, with the two casts who escaped me at the moment. But uh, Dashiell Hammett wrote my dad a letter after the movie came out. No, not at that time. I have the letter, but it was dated after the second Maltese Falcon came out that Houston did in the 40s which is of the two the more famous one of course which was excellent but in a correspondence uh uh dashiell hammett wrote a letter to my dad i think in in, a, in respect my dad had written him concerning another project that dashiell hammett had wrote that he was interested possibly in purchasing and i think in response to that particular letter 
Hammett responded to my dad that he said that his version, my father's version of the Maltese Falcon was his intent. That's how the picture should have been done, should have been played. That's how it was written as a, a tongue-in-cheek kind of farcical thing, which my dad saw that in that material. I think that's what attracted to him to begin with. No, 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 no. George Raff was much later. George Raff was one of my my mom's boyfriends back in the day. You remember? I told you. George Raff was interesting. George Raff was a, uh, was a dancer originally, and uh, he could dance for hours. And the reason he did is he'd wire his wrists or and, and his legs very tightly so it would cut the bloodstream off to the feet so they'd never get tired and he could just dance and dance and dance and that's it was such strange kind of circumstances yeah sounds like that would be painful as hell you feel your feet the idea was that you couldn't feel your feet so it was the legs it was doing it you know it was just like like horrifying to me but the fact that you, I mean, the whole furthest drift of being at your house and stuff. Yeah. Which street yeah. did you live on? What street? Yeah. That was in Beverly Hills, right? No, that wasn't. Uh, that was uh, in, uh, on a street called, you know where Royal Oaks is? Okay, well then, you know, just right there on Valley Vista. Okay. Uh, we lived in Valley Vista. We had a, a, it was, we we had bought, my dad bought the house, but he bought the lot next door. And then, um, <laughs> typical of my father, as he spent like a drunken sailor, it's amazing. Uh, he was friends with William Randolph Hearst. And uh, he, one day my dad was up at the Hearst Castle, I guess, unbeknownst to me, I'm young. We had owned this big lot that was next to the house we just purchased, we bought the lot. My dad wanted to put a lot of pine trees in there, but tall and already built. So Hearst had all these pine trees, you know, all over his property. So he went up and, and, and asked Hearst if he could, you know, take six or seven of the big palm tree, pine trees. And so he, they made a financial deal, some small amount of money. But the big cost was shipping because they had to hire, you know, seven or eight big flatbeds that would hold 40-foot trees and haul them down the coast, you know, to, to our, put them in our backyard. And we had these holes that were... I think they were 12 by 12 by 10 uh, that were in the backyard where they were going to put these fully grown trees. And oh my God, I couldn't believe it. I was uh, eight years old or 10 years, nine years old. And I saw, I came home from school on my bicycle one day and I saw these construction cranes. They were big things like you'd put uh, on top of a building. And they were hauling these huge trees and putting them in these holes, you know, which had been in the backyard. And we were playing guns. We'd always play in these holes. They're like trenches. And they were putting these big pine trees into there. And, and then, you know, uh, once we got all those in, it was the grass and then the cement and the waterfalls and the rest of the stuff. And it was just, a, just such a pleasure. Uh, but anyway, what I'm saying is it was there. And, and it was a good place to have parties because, you know, basically it was uh, base, an acre and a half of grass, you know, with a big patio and a pool and, and areas for various things. So uh, my mom, being as outgoing as she was and living in a neighborhood uh, of theatrical people, Raymond Burr lived next door, if you remember who he was. Then directly across the street was Liberace. And uh, 
we as kids, of course, and I didn't participate in this, I must say, I stood by the side, but I watched it. My friend, my cousin Rusty, you know, took the dog shit and put it in the bag and lit the bag and knocked on the door and then... At what point in your life did you realize that you were surrounded by that, in the, that you were in that world? Oh, well, um, growing up it was normal for me to be in that world all the time, so I didn't think any other world existed. Because all my friends, my Boy Scout troop, my uh, Cub Scout group, my Boy Scout group, we were all from the entertainment business, one way or another. My, some, my, my best friend was a, a well-known makeup artist. Uh, and, uh, oh, let's see, other kids, uh, film editors, you know, sons and stuff that, that I went to school with, you know, at in the Catholic grammar school. So I knew nothing other than, I thought everybody in the world was in this particular business and, 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 and had all this privilege, you know, because I knew I had every bicycle that I ever wanted. I knew, you know, it was like a spoiled little asshole. And so... Uh, and so that's one of the reasons I joined the Army, too, by the way, to get away from that. But I didn't realize how privileged I was until I got into high school. When I got into high school, I now was with people who were not in the entertainment business. They were from other things. They were from families that were uh, industrialists. They were people that were middle class, most of them middle class, and, 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 and a lot of them that were lower middle class. You know, So I had this wide variety, and that was where... I woke up to that the world does not evolve around the movie business, and 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 there's another part of the world too, you know that I uh, that that I had to learn to deal with, and it was interesting, and it was just that uh, it was just that awakening that I think played to some extent my reason for wanting to join the army because I thought uh, the adventure of this, and I think I think it's going to make me a better person by doing that, and I think that it did. I mean, basically. I liked it. Changes your environment enough. Yeah. Changes yeah. your world a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. You don't. Uh, yeah. I learned a lot of things by being around those guys, and uh, yeah, I learned like you know what it was to you know man up and take care of yourself. That was. I think that was important. You were around. A, uh, sounds like a lot of good work ethic, though. With I mean, the people in the you know, movie industry, especially back then, there was, you know, there was, they were oh, no, all workers. Oh, no, they were all workers, and yeah, and uh, and I, I was kind of, a, a, I was always a worker bee, wasn't I? Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, I, you know, I just keep going. I just seem to never get tired, which I was working you know, these 12 long 14-hour days. I was one of the few that didn't seem to feel getting tired. I mean, I, on the weekends, I would crash. Yeah. But it was during the week I could sustain those hours indefinitely. When the people would take naps, you know, and stuff in the afternoon, I'd be walking around, you know, doing things. And uh, it kind of suited me because of this uh, constant, uh, well, it was, it, it's organized turmoil, you know, constantly on a set. So, and I kind of, I like that in a way. Well, you know, I've had a, an opportunity on a number of venues, you know, to express uh, my desires and my concerns, hello, little buddy, uh, about about uh, about things in general. Uh, it's just uh, f for the sake of this particular piece, uh, for students of film, uh, I think it's important to learn 
not just the modern techniques and the stylizations, but to understand the f history of film and what your forefathers in this particular business went through in order to create the business in which you now find yourselves and hopefully you enjoy uh, what you're doing and have a fruitful and positive experience. Thanks for listening to our Film 5.0 podcast. Please subscribe now so you don't miss an episode. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and our webpage, thefilm50.com.